Is this on? Okay. So, good morning, everyone. Uh, sorry for being a little late. Uh, traffic from the East Bay was not good. <laughs> Anyone come from the East Bay? Yeah, not so good, huh? <laughs> so, uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Donald Rothbard, for anyone whom I haven't met. And we usually start with about uh, 40 minutes of silent practice. And we'll... Most of us will be practicing mindfulness. Is there anyone here who is new to mindfulness or rusty in some way such that uh, initial instructions would be helpful? You can raise your hand if that's the case. Okay. And those of you who have heard initial instructions many times can either listen and perhaps get something new or hear my words like background sounds coming through the wind, or perhaps uh, be a little irritated and do practice advanced practice, mindfulness of irritation and reactivity, <laughs> which is that go, going to a deeper level. So very, very good. Okay. So first of all, find a posture where you can be alert and relaxed. Typically that means good connection with the ground, feet flat on the floor if that's possible, or good connection and sitting on a cushion. Chest open. Spine straight, just check your body that there's no place where there's uh, ongoing tension, where uh, you might easily release it. If that's the case, you can shift your posture a little bit or see if you can release any tension. And the typical way that we develop mindfulness is first settling the mind some, becoming less distracted, and secondly, on the basis of that relatively undistracted attention, we look carefully at experience uh, moment by moment. And in that process, we come over time to notice the patterns of our experience which are helpful and those which are not so helpful. So in the long run, we develop uh, wisdom about our moment-to-moment experience. And then we, on the basis of this training in a protected environment, we bring out and continue that training when things are not so protected, uh, more fast-moving, complex, and so forth. To stabilize attention, we typically focus on one area of experience, very commonly the breath, but it also could be body sensation in some part of the body, maybe the hands touching together or the contact with the chair or cushion could be sound. 
For those of us for whom the breath is emotionally neutral, that wouldn't be the case, for example, for many who have a history of asthma. But for those for whom the breath is relatively neutral, we often focus there where the breath is easiest to follow. Could be the belly area. Some people even keep their hands on the belly. Could be the chest area, the lungs extending, contracting. Could be the area of the nostrils. Breath coming in through the nostrils, going out. And we see where the breath is easiest to follow. And we stay there. Are attentive to the sensations of the breath. When the mind wanders, we simply return to the breath. Sometimes it's helpful to make a mental note in or out. Some people like to count the breaths up to 10 with each out breath and then back to one. This uses some mental energy, but it helps cut through the overly active mind. So it can be skillful. So we just keep coming back to the breath or if we're using another area of focus, we stay at the level of sensation and just keep coming back when the mind wanders. And with the breath, we let the breath be natural. We don't, as much as possible, try to help it along or control it and so forth. And then when there's some degree of stability of mind, we stay with the breath or whatever other primary focus area we're using. We stay with the breath, with the in and the out, and then when the mind goes to something else, like a thought, we notice the thought. We might make a mental note, planning or remembering. When it goes to something like a uh, emotion, maybe I'm thinking of something positive that happened yesterday and I'm feeling contentment. And it stays for a while and I feel that happiness or joy. I can make a mental note of that and feel what it's like if it, because it'll typically last for a while. When it's no longer predominant or I'm not sure what's predominant, I go back to the breath. You also might have body sensations that become predominant. Maybe my left shoulder, there's some itching or something that takes my attention, then I bring my attention there as long as it's predominant. When it's no longer predominant, again, or I'm not sure, I go back to the breath or whatever else the primary focus is. And in doing all of this, we develop more stability of mind. We also continually notice where the attention goes, which over time can, can lead to insight. We'll stay now with the silent practice.
So if the mind wanders, simply notice that and come back over and over.
as we continue to sit quietly, we'll have uh, several minutes of our group practice, which we typically do after the silent sitting. We create a space where those who wish to speak could speak on the one hand about an individual or group or part of the world situation where there's a need for concern, where there's some difficulty or something painful perhaps. And on the other hand, where there's a situation or person, group, part of the world where there's a reason for uh, appreciation or gratitude or even uh, celebration. The request is to speak maybe twice as loud as you might ordinarily so that someone on the other side of the hall can hear you. Try to remember that and be on the brief side but still give enough detail so we can, can hear what you have to say.
Anyone else would like to speak? Now is a good time. Again, good morning, everyone. Uh, again, for those whom I haven't met, my name is Donald Rothberg. And uh, I've been helping with this Wednesday morning teaching since 2001. And it was started about 1990 by Sylvia Borstein, who will uh, be here in, I think, about uh, three weeks. And the plan is for me to uh, be here um, today, which is so far working, and then, and then also the next two times. So, um, we typically uh, go till right around noon, and have uh, a few announcements. Now we have the meditation, the announcements, a little bit of a break, and then come back for a talk and discussion. And so, I want to invite people who are here for the first time to the Wednesday gathering, if you could raise your hand, say your name and where you live, and we want to welcome you. Maybe start on this side. Anyone? Hi. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Did I, have I met you through there? Okay, because I sometimes teach there. Yeah, thank you. And in the middle, please. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Welcome. And any more in the middle? Then on the uh, my left on this side. Any anyone? So the experienced people gravitate to the left. <laughs> okay, I won't make anything of that. Okay, so, so a few announcements. Um, again, uh, I plan to be here the next uh, two weeks as well. And then uh, on the table back there, as usual, uh, we have a few things. We have, uh, I think Anne will make the announcement. We have... Uh, some a basket for people who want to help with a homeless shelter, but you can say more about that. And I have some materials, uh, flyers for some upcoming retreats uh, and events. Um, my teaching schedule, uh, a few copies of a book that I did on connecting inner work with social service and social change work, which is out there, and the reading list. And I also have a few cards for some events coming up with uh, uh, Heidi Bourne, who sometimes teaches here. Some of you know Heidi. 
and she has a spring retreat uh, uh, north of here a few hours. And she also has a woman's sort of uh, hiking and meditation retreat. So kind of being in the uh, forest and hills. So there are cards on that back there. And also a, um, uh, a list if you want to get occasional emails from me about typically about twice a year. I'm, I'm actually planning one. It's a big event. Okay, okay so other, other announcements? Anne, please. Yeah, thank you, Anne. So anyone who's interested in helping in some way could speak to you. Yeah. And we should get you a little more rewards. We should get you a free day long. I'll just speak with the powers that be. <laughs> or if I could just say, yes, do. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it, it helps a lot. And you can stay connected and meet people. And But mostly it really supports uh, what we're doing here. And any other announcements? Okay, so we'll take a short break. Let's come back uh, a few minutes before 11 uh, so we can uh, start right 11 or a little bit before. And I'll, I'll ring a few bells um, maybe two or three minutes before we, we, we'll start.
Let's call people in now. Ali Ali Income Free. Did you say that? How many people said that as kids? Okay. Okay. All over the country, huh? Or well, this was uh, this was um, Washington D.C. area. Uh, it's it's playing hide and seek. Ali Ali Income Free. All yellow and, and free. Okay. What, what was the West Coast version? All yellow oxen free. Okay. It's not bad for a meditation center, is it? All yellow income free. I don't think we have everyone. Chris, could you call people? Tell them we're starting. I know our bookstore bell ringer is not quite in. Huh? No, but she she hadn't come back. I'd like to honor her for her for her role. Okay, we'll start. Do we have someone who takes care of the recording to this morning? Okay. So this morning I want to continue with a series of explorations that we've been doing for, I think, uh, actually a year uh, that we've been looking at how our ordinary more conditioned being, our experience, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, get transformed on the way to awakening. Or we might say also, as we awaken. And the emphasis originally came out of a uh, talk that was done uh, in reference to the Mary Oliver poem, The Journey, and looking at that poem to give us a sense of uh, the stages of the journey. And I interpret that more broadly to point to the stages of spiritual practice. And one of the interesting things that I got more clear about in benefiting from Mary Oliver's poem was the way that 
start, in a way, taking things for granted, uh, really, as it were, caught in our ordinary conditioning and acting somewhat on automatic. And we all find that when we first start meditating. Here's the way my mind works. Here are my patterns. Here are the habitual tendencies that I have. Here are the ways I become reactive. Here's my sense of self-image. Here's how I look like uh, my mother or my father or uh, a product of this culture or whatever. And we start to get aware of that. And as we, even as we learn, and even as we develop in what can be profound ways, we always come back to looking at that ordinary conditioning. In other words, the ordinary conditioning is with us right until the end of the journey, so to speak. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the traditional models that comes from the uh, teachings of the Buddha, there's a model of stages of awakening, and it's only it's only right at the end that someone's uh, sense of self-image as a really good meditator, for example, uh, leaves. That there are stages, there's, there's the stream-enterer, there's the, um, uh, there's the once-returner, there's the non-returner, and there's the uh, arhat, or the, the awakened one, and it's only in the transition from the third to the fourth stage of awakening, according to this model, that one uh, goes away from what is usually translated as conceit, or we might say self-centeredness or self-image. So you could have a panel, I was thinking, of really advanced meditators sitting up here and even though they might have done decades or in the Buddhist model, uh, lifetimes of spiritual practice, they could all be sitting up here thinking, I'm a better uh, non-returner than that one. And that would be normal, right? That would be normal. In other words, a lot of the aspects of our uh, ordinary conditioning, as, as we know, are quite thick and uh, strong. And they last for a long time. What that means on the other side is, and this is what I, I got out of particularly reflecting the Mary Oliver poem, is that it's helpful to identify a number of the parameters of our ordinary conditioning. And so this particular series, I've identified 10 different parameters of our ordinary conditioning that each of those gets transformed along the way. And we've looked, for example, at the way that our thinking mind is in its ordinary, more conditioned, habitual state, which in this culture means thinking a lot, like most of the time. Uh, and we've also looked at the, the way that we have uh, our sense of the body, in our ordinary conditioning. We looked at the way that our emotions are conditioned, the sense of what we sometimes call the heart. We looked at the sense of an independent or separate self 
which is a very strong part of our conditioning. And uh, in the last few times that we were here, we, I, I had a lot of fun with this. We looked at our, our sense of time and how our uh, experience of time shifts as we work with the ordinary conditioning around time. And I had a, so to speak, a good time doing that. I hope you did too. But, and I was a little bit sad to see the emphasis on time end. <laughs> or at least in terms of these talks. And, uh, and so with each of those, we had a very simple structure. We tried to say, what is the nature of the ordinary conditioning? First. Secondly, what seems to be the nature of what we might call the Buddha mind or the experience of an awakened being according to a given parameter, number two. And then number three, as it were, how do we get from one to two? <laughs> how do we practice? How do we develop? That's the, that's the structure of these explorations. And so we're now on um, the sixth out of 10. And I don't know what's going to happen when we get to 10. Something unexpected, perhaps. But uh, we're on the sixth now. And of course, I might find after 10, or we might find after 10, we left out another 10. But 10 is a good number. It has a long history in both the West and the East for how you should pay attention to things. And so um, for the time being, we'll go with, with 10. And we're on the sixth. So the sixth is that all of us have what we might call uh, a certain amount of psychological conditioning. We all are driven to a large extent by habitual patterns, which we could call, we could say, are more of a psychological nature. Another way to say that is we're all driven to a significant extent by uh, materials which are either unconscious or half-conscious or semi-conscious. We're all driven in certain ways. A lot of us by what happened in childhood or earlier in our experience. And I have to say that in emphasizing this aspect of our conditioning and also the next one, the seventh is actually looking at social conditioning. Here we're emphasizing aspects of our conditioning which were only partly emphasized historically in the Buddhist tradition that looking at our psychological conditioning, again, we can point to some ways that were parallel in the teachings of the Buddha, but to a large extent, in looking at psychological conditions, we're especially making use of resources which have only been clarified in the West in the last 100 years, 100 years plus, right? With the advent of psychology, uh, traditions of psychotherapy, and so forth. And same thing is very much the case looking at social conditioning. Even though we can point to some parallels, and I'll do that some in terms of the teachings of the Buddha, here there's something very interesting happening, which is that the very notion, notion of awakening is shifting in some ways, I think, due to 
sort of the interplay of Buddhist and other spiritual traditions and Western traditions, particularly in the context of our morning of uh, Western psychology, as well as understanding of trauma and so forth. And so something very interesting is happening. I've, I've heard some people even say that the very meaning of awakening is changing. And that even the, the notion of what it means to be awake could be said to have an evolutionary component, which is interesting, right? You know, that there's, uh, uh, there's this way in which uh, to be an awake being, we may have to go through certain areas of exploration and training that were not part of the classical Buddhist models, which is very interesting. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. And one of the ways that we see that more clearly is in you know, some of the ways that uh, teachers in particular, uh, Western teachers as well as Asian teachers, have shown that they can have a very awake qualities in certain contexts and have maybe experienced very deep meditative states and still, to use colloquial terms, mess up and get involved in abuses of power, abuses of sexuality, abuses of finance, uh, finances, and so forth. And these have been happening for decades, right? And they're, you know, in, in my understanding of this, these are very much pointers to the fact that for those, uh, in this case teachers, but the same thing applies to any of us, they had apparently unresolved issues that may not have been on their maps of development, which is quite interesting, isn't it? You know, and I, I was, you know, I was looking over some of the ones just from the last year or two where we have you know, all the ones that I saw actually were men, uh, which, you know, again, may point to the social conditioning around gender as being something that they might not have looked at enough or we might not have looked at enough. Um, but, there, you know, there were, again, allegations and often findings of uh, sexual abuse or, uh, you know, using power in ways which were sometimes called abusive and so forth, and uh, so we want to we want to look at th- we want to look at that, and we want to look, and we may know that in ourselves as people who have meditated for some time that we might find that we may have meditated for many years or even decades, and still know that we have unworked out material which we might identify as of a psychological nature. And so that's, and I certainly know that for myself. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very interesting uh, inquiry, right? And really the question is, what is the relationship of the kind of learning and working through of unresolved materials that we might um, look at and the more traditional maps of spiritual development? How, how does the map of what we might call psychological development relate to the map of traditional sense of spiritual development where we 
where we learn, and then that traditional model, you know, very simply put, we uh, maybe initially develop uh, good motivation. We train in uh, being ethical and so forth. We learn how to be part of a community and so forth. And then at a certain point, we start on meditation training proper where we learn how to develop more uh, concentration. We learn how to have the mind be still and pliable. We learn how to open the heart further with practices like loving kindness, compassion, and so forth. And we develop liberating insight into impermanence and the nature of reactivity, dukkha, usually translated as suffering. We develop insight into the nature of the self and then we, uh, after, often after periods of working on these first two areas, we may open to experiences of awakening. Right? That's, the, that's the traditional map. So the question I'm going to be exploring is where does working with our unresolved psychological material fall? Or how do, how do we have a map of that which relates to these traditional models of development and uh, how does that relate to our practice of meditation and even our teaching of meditation. And I think that this is really, in many ways, a collective discussion that we're right in the middle of. I'm not going to claim that I have reached any definitive conclusions. I think I can say that it is a conclusion that we that the map of practice needs to include a psychological work to a large extent and that we're still seeing what that means. So that's what I want to do today is really uh, probably we'll look at this for a few times but really open up the territory and then have us do individually some inquiry questions and then we'll have a discussion together. Okay. One of the interesting aspects of traditional training is that there are what could be called and what are called in the Tibetan tradition preliminary practices. There are ways that uh, one develops the motivation to uh, take spiritual training seriously. And one works with maybe any remaining ethical issues or character issues. Again, though traditionally these were not understood with the kind of uh, precision that psychological traditions have in terms of development. And I think also that even uh, that psycho- what we call psychological development is also dependent very much on the culture. So it means something different when you have, uh, means something different in a culture which emphasizes uh, the identity being primarily collective, as has been the case in most cultures, and uh, when compared with a culture in which identity is primarily understood individually, which has been the case in the West for, not for very long, but, but for certainly the last hundred years, right? And so we have a, a sense of identity which is not primarily defined collectively. 
that brings about certain issues, but that's another question. <laughs> Such as inability to deal with polarization of views and you know uh, all sorts of other issues. But anyway, I won't go into that. That's that's um, a pointer to to one one dimension of things. But we do find in the uh, in Buddhist traditions. Uh, a stage of development where one would more or less get it together enough to be ready to meditate deeply. And again, uh, this could be what one does when one is younger in the Buddhist tradition, you know, in Thailand, as I've sometimes said, young children learn about dana, her generosity. They develop certain virtues by offering to monastics every morning if they, you know, as in many villages in Thailand, they live near a monastery. Right? And so they learn certain qualities and these are emphasized in the culture. When they, you know, if they would become a monastic, they would also uh, really have a strong emphasis on the ethical training, you know, of learning to uh, follow the ethical precepts of uh, not harming not taking that which is not given, uh, learning how to be skillful with speech, uh, and so forth. Learning, uh, you know, often, if one's a monastic, actually refraining from sexual activity and sexual energy as well as intoxicants, right? And so there would be this ethical training that they would have gone through. And often that might be what younger practitioners would do initially. They would have this kind of training. In other words, they wouldn't, all, they wouldn't necessarily start meditating right from the get-go. They would maybe go through a, a period of training. And we have something like this also very explicitly in the Tibetan tradition, where they're called preliminary practices, which really prepare one to be able to go into meditation having a very clear motivation that this is what I'm doing, uh, having a very clear view, what, what in Buddhist tradition is sometimes called right view or wise view, about how things work, and also having worked through some of the uh, unresolved issues that might be there in terms of character as they're understood in the culture. So many of you know that in the Tibetan preliminary practices, the first practice is engaging in what are called the four thoughts that turn one's mind to the Dharma. This is where you reflect on the uh, fact of death and the nature of impermanence. And this is really done to have one ask, what's important in my life? You also reflect on the nature of suffering. And you, you reflect on other areas which tend to bring a certain urgency to the need to develop spiritually. Right? And uh, then, you know, one engages in some very... Uh, detailed further practices. These are some of you, maybe some of you have done these, where the first of these is where one does prostrations to really have one connect with the 
tradition and the motivation. And that one engages in certain practices which are understood as purification practices, purification of one's being. One relates to, uh, as well, to a teacher. So there are these practices which are taken to have a certain purifying aspect uh, on one's character. And it's only after those that you would really start to meditate. Right? And so in that tradition, there, there, there is a place for something that comes before meditation. We don't do that in the West, really. Right? We, we just say, let me teach you meditation. People start meditation. And I think what, we're, what we have found over the last, whatever it is, uh, 40, 45 years, is that uh, for many people, they're not quite ready to meditate. It's helpful to learn relaxation. It's helpful to learn mindfulness some. But for anyone who has uh, a major history of trauma, uh, meditation uh, can actually be uh, not helpful. It can even, at the worst, be uh, traumatizing. I think I've sometimes told the story of, I, I went through the, a three-year trauma training, uh, somatic experiencing training, and we had a, we had a group of us, about 10 of us, who were uh, meditation teachers or fairly experienced practitioners. And I heard stories of people who had significant trauma who were in meditation retreats and traumatic material was coming up and they were told, just sit with it, stay with it. Not a good idea, but the teachers were uninformed about trauma, right? And so... Uh, that was not skillful, right? And in a similar way, we could have people who have really major unresolved psychological material who go on retreats and they may not get so much out of the retreat. At the worst, it does them some damage. And that happens. That has happened, right? Because the teachers, by and large, especially in the early years, were not very... No one was a therapist. People weren't... A few were. Jack Cornfield had therapy training, but most teachers did not, right? And so uh, people would just suppose, and this was my thinking as well, when I first started meditating, I thought, because I, I had had kind of a, I had had what felt like a really significant awakening even before I meditated. And I thought, oh, I'll meditate. I'll get to a stable level of awakening and then see what came next. It should take a few years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even when the teachers talked about the fact that uh, um, there was, um, you know, there is suffering, I thought they were talking about other people. Right? And so uh, I assumed I would just, uh, you know, go onwards and upwards and um, it wouldn't take that long. And, that that would be it, <laughs> and uh, and for me, actually, the process of meditation disclosed what we might call shadow material, or unresolved parts of my being, and it came out in. For me, it actually was able to be processed a lot in meditation, but I also felt a need to complement it with more dedicated psychological work, right, and so. Um, but by and large, we haven't had good maps. And I, I would say still, we don't have very clear maps of how these 
areas uh, connect with each other. And I'm sure the stories I told about uh, uh, the teachers who may not have good psychological training or good training in trauma, essentially just telling people sit with it is uh, maybe happening still. And then on the other hand, people get the sense that they can just meditate and all their issues will be resolved, much, much like I had that assumption, right? And I've actually talked with people in retreats. Uh, uh, I remember one person I spoke with who uh, told me a little bit about having a trauma history. And, uh, and when I talked to this person, uh, the person got very, very angry because I suggested that some focused work on trauma would be helpful and said, no, I just want to do it with meditation. And I more or less said, I don't think it's going to work well. But person got very angry and I don't know what happened, but the, the communication broke down at that point, right? Had a very strong notion, I'm going to meditate and resolve all my issues. And I don't think it works like that, right? And so how do we... How do we relate these, these uh, areas? I've had the thought, and I've heard this from others as well, that uh, for some people, doing work of a psychological nature or work with trauma is the equivalent in our uh, culture of the preliminary practices. It's interesting, right? What are our preliminary practices? Uh, well, I think we may need to attend to certain psychological issues and it can be you know, helpful if we do some of that even before we do a lot of meditation. But it seems to be more the pattern that people do some meditation and then do some psychological work and it gets more integrated in certain ways. You know, and uh, again, people don't always want to be told this. <laughs> right? That's certainly been my experience, or people don't want to be told sometimes, I think there's some psychological issues here. You know, and so, for example, um, we may find, and I think I'll, I'll give a map, there may be all sorts of unresolved psychological issues that we have. You know, and then when you look to uh, psychological traditions and schools of therapy, you can see all sorts of issues which are identified. Uh, you know, a lot of them may be uh, developmental, you know. And when, the, when these issues aren't dealt with, people may find, people may get to a certain point in meditation, but they may find that there are certain limits that, that develop. I've certainly seen these. Many of you know that I have focused a lot in my own teaching on the theme, which came out of my own work, and how do you work with the judgmental mind, you know, in many ways, very central, that is being self-judgmental, you know, which, which is on the map of a lot of developmental issues in psychology under the rubric of self-esteem, right? And I found that uh, there were major issues that really surfaced in a strong way that I could see were there from the beginning related to self-judgment, also linked with judging others <laughs> and so forth. But... Um, I have found that sometimes when I work with people, I can see those issues in them. I've been teaching on this for almost 20 years and uh, really focused on how, for many of us, some kind of judgments of self and often of other 
are residues from unresolved issues often that arise in, typically that arise in childhood, right? And they're often fairly unconscious. We don't know what they are, but they're, they're there. And I found that for a lot of people, even very dedicated practitioners who've done 10, 20, even 30 years, these issues surface. I've taught our long retreat four times, our month-long retreat, and I meet people there who need, who I think really need to do some sustained work on their own self-judgments, and I can give them practices in the context of a retreat. But if one doesn't deal with these issues, all sorts of uh, obstacles to further deepening meditation can come up. Uh, uh, doubt, self-judgment, maybe really uh, pervasive, uh, almost uh, uncontrolled thinking about certain areas, right? These can happen in one's experience, both in meditation and, and as it were, off the cushion. Uh, and people can have a hard time connecting meditation with, with daily life. Uh, interestingly, there are some people who go very, very deeply with meditation and then psychological issues uh, appear. You know, one teacher who's been public about this is Michelle McDonald, who sometimes has taught here. And I, I did an interview with her once because uh, I, I did some writing on the relation of psychological and development and spiritual development. I interviewed several people and she was one of them. And she talked about her own experience where she went very, very deep in traditional ways. And then after about six or seven years of very intensive practice, memories of uh, childhood abuse surfaced. It's very, it was very interesting. And she had to do sustained work with that for a number of years, right? To, but it, it actually didn't initially hold her back from very deep insights, right? Which were then helpful for her as she dealt with the issues. And I'll also mention that uh, for some people, particularly those who have certain kinds of developmental issues, um, you know, if one, one set of developmental issues that people often have is really kind of like an inability to get a sense of how they um, appear in the world, how they make a contribution in their own lives to the world through work, through being with others, which is a, which is a, a large issue for that many of us have faced at times. And there are some people who have developmental issues, and I have had the experience of talking with them, and they, some of them, hear the Buddhist teachings about there not being any self. And they say, oh, I'm finally understood. Whereas it's actually a developmental issue. They haven't had a clear sense of self to emerge developmentally. And so when I suggest, I think it'd be really helpful for you to get a job. And the person... I've had the experience of people really being offended when I when I say these things. When I have a sense that there may be development that's necessary to go further in meditation, right? So, in any case, so there there are maps of where uh, development might be lacking. I'll just mention a few of these and mention a few practices, and actually do a practice together, and then open things up. So in, in, in a way, today, I want to give general orientation to, to our inquiry. And so there may be, you know, uh, psychologists, uh, developmental psychologists would say that we need to have 
a fairly clear sense of self develop to have ordinary, what we call ordinary development. You know, and some, some psychologists have said, you know, have almost made a, a formula out of this. Jack Engler, some of you may know his writing, he says you have to have a firmly developed self before you let go of a self, right? That if you don't have that firmly developed self, clearly developed self, there are unresolved developmental issues. And again, people can get confused and think, oh, I'm an advanced spiritual practitioner. And they can mistake lack of development with spiritual insight, right? That, as in the story I just gave. And so people may not have the development where they can have a clear sense of self. Normally this develops when one, one is young, have a clear sense of agency in the world and have a reasonable sense of uh, being a good person or being, you know, a reasonable sense of self-esteem, something like that. That would that'd be part of ordinary development. And again, there are many situations where that doesn't occur when people are young. You know, some psychologists use the concept of healthy attachment with a parent as being one of the signposts. And, you know, a healthy connection with a, a parental figure would mean that one has a sense that the parent understands one, is there to soothe when there's distress, uh, uh, gives a sense of joy in one's being. So one has a sense, oh, you know, my presence brings joy to my parent. This is ordinary development, right, that would occur. And uh, has general empathy. And this is, you know, when this occurs, uh, there's ordinary development. And I've heard statistics given from studies that 60% are, no, this this way, 40% of the population in the U.S. are lacking in some of that healthy attachment. 40%. And so, uh, you know, and it may be more. It's actually, when they've done the studies, it's actually less in a number of other countries. The percentage is less. I've heard it said that in many European countries, it's closer to 20%. There are things happening in this culture. And, you know, again, the electronics and all that may be making it worse, right? Because, you know, having busy parents who can't attend to the child will result in these things happening. And that's partly there in the culture. And so that also sets up a kind of, uh, a kind of development that we could call more relational. One, has, one can actually relate to other human beings especially based on the successful relationship that occurred uh, as a child. And also related to that, there can be the capacity to know uh, and be with one's emotions, body states, and so forth, and be able to work with those without having being taken away and lost in in the emotions. And there are a lot of different issues there. but though that would be, there, you know, many of us may have aspects of that ordinary, uh, usually taken for granted development, which are not fully there. We may need to go back and work on some of those. And then, of course, there are other kinds of issues that more appear under so-called pathologies, whether depression, anxiety, you know, uh, 
border, borderline narcissism, all sorts of other issues which may be there, you know, and uh, maybe there, even if we're, even if there, we're quite successful apparently in, in what we do in life, you know, uh, I remember there was a, I think a New Yorker cartoon which showed this person sitting at a desk and, you know, the way the New Yorker cartoons are, the person's head was like a very strange geometric shape and the person had a very strong, strange grin you know, and had a, a sign on the uh, a sign on the uh, desk that said something like, "This isn't exact, but it's more or less the same meaning." Incredibly messed up, but amazingly still functional. <laughs> right, and so anyway, it's just to point these are pointing out a map of some of uh, what we might uh, need to work with. You know, and there are all these different issues that occur and uh, there's also the, the different sets of traumatic experiences that might occur uh, either as a child or later in life, abuse being the, you know, one of the more recognized forms of trauma, but there can be all sorts of other forms of trauma which can leave people in a generally what in the literature is called a hyper-aroused state where you're very not quite safe have to look around all the time, not quite safe. And this can, of course, distort all sorts of things, right? Can lead to all sorts of, of issues. Um, one of the words that's used is the, uh, uh, that some of this may constitute what uh, could be called the shadow territory. Carl Jung talked about the shadow. He said the shadow is uh, especially the negative side of the personality, all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. And shadow may be more extensive, may involve all these different areas that we've mentioned. And there was a, one person gave the image that uh, this was uh, Robert Bly, the, the poet, wrote a book, a book called A Little Book on the Shadow. And he said that by the time any of us are 18, we carry a long bag be, behind us, the long bag of our stuff and our shadow. And I've seen also another cartoon where it shows like two people on a date and they're meeting, but they each have like a, uh, you know, a 10 foot long bag behind them of their stuff. And that's maybe closer to the reality of human life, right? (laughs) What would it look like if we actually could see each of our bags here right now? And, you know, know. and so... um, I'll say more about that, you know, of course, and again, this is, so we really need these maps, don't we? We need the maps, so, and we need, uh, we need to have a sense of, as I develop spiritually, how does this more psychological development come in? And how do I, how do I bring those together? And do I need to bring them together? Am I totally together now? So I can just go onward and upwards. I won't ask, sometimes I ask for show of hands on these <laughs> areas. And so, again, there are different ways of working with this, working with the material. You know, there's, of course, uh, psychologi- there's psychological methods, all, for, all sorts of forms of psychotherapy can go in that direction, um, using all sorts of tools, using dreams, artwork, ritual, ceremony, uh, uh, you know, I, I did uh, several years of work training to be a clown. 
which was, you know, and my teacher interpreted it as a kind of shadow work. Bring out the shadow work in your persona as a clown. Sometimes I'll have to show, I have a, I have a video of me as a, in my, some of my clown performance. Maybe I'll have to bring it in sometime. Maybe, maybe one of these times. Um, and so, but, and so, but we also, I, my experience has been we also can look into this material in meditation. You know, it might appear as anger continually coming up or reactivity, you know, or a lot of, a lot of self-image, you know. I know I had, you know, this is what I experienced very strongly in my own meditation. The self-image would be very important. My self-image as a meditator. I remember one time I, in a retreat, I was uh, very, uh, I was really wanting to go really, really deeply that retreat, and I got a cold. And I started sniffling and, you know, wasn't meditating the ordinary way. And I thought everyone would know that I was not a good meditator. I mean, it's sad in a way, because I could have compassion for it, but what I was going, was going on was fear, actually. People will see this way. And it went on for, for days, and it actually was destabilizing. Uh, but it was also very interesting because I could see the fear there, and I, I could I worked with it. So there were certain ways that one can work with some of this material meditatively. And in the work I do with a judgmental mind, I actually bring together psychological tools with meditative tools. So there are ways one can work with that. So um, I wanted to just before going into discussion. Um, ask you to go inside on the basis of this discussion. Let me ask you just to, we could do this in, in dyads, but I think for partly for the sake of um, ease, we'll do, I'll do it just individually. And I want to ask uh, two questions. And these are questions I, I learned originally from uh, Gwen Gordon. First is, what is your totally glowing story about yourself? What is your glowing or wonderful story about yourself? Don't have to worry about whether it's true. When you're really glowing about yourself, what do you say to yourself? And then the second question is, what is your own story about your own shadow? This is just for yourself. What are your unresolved areas? How do you understand those? What are your unresolved areas, your shadow, your residues, maybe from childhood or the past that are still in need of attention.
Well, it's fine if you want to take some notes. How many have had a longer second story than first story? <laughs> okay, that's okay. And um, so just a few more things to, to finish up. Um, there are ways that we can be attentive to what might be part more of that shadow material. We can look to where there's self-image. We can look to where there is reactivity. What are persistent patterns of reactivity? And I want to invite you to study those in the next week. You know, where you study, in some sense, your shadow territory. Look for reactivity, look for self-image. Those are two major markers. <clears throat> if you can, also hold yourself in the next week with compassion do regularly every day some kind of heart practice like loving kindness or compassion direct towards yourself. Because when we go into um, difficult or challenging territory, we need to do so with kindness and warmth and also know that this is the human condition, it's not me. It's everyone has the same uh, stuff, more or less. That's, that's what I have found. And I'll just say maybe in closing, that it was a very significant part of the Buddha's practice to encounter shadow material right before he went off. And many of you know the Buddha was heavily protected by his parents so that he wouldn't experience what was negative. He said, he, he, he said I was most delicately brought up. He led a life of... Uh, pleasure up until he was in his 20s. And then on, you know, on successive uh, evenings, he, had, he, he was, he, his parents permitted no, nothing negative in his life, no signs of suffering, anything unpleasant. And then he went beyond the boundaries of the palace uh, on four successive nights. And one night, the first night, he saw an old person Second night, he saw someone who was ill. The third night, he saw a corpse. And the fourth night, he saw a wandering spiritual seeker. He had never experienced any of those, and he was totally shocked. And it led to this need to look into what was beyond simply a life of pleasure. He looked to, we might say, he looked into his own shadow material. And there, I'll, I'll say more about that maybe next time. Maybe just close with, um, let me close with two quotations. This is from a book which I've quoted from, I think a few times, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns, called The First Free Woman. And this is uh, one of the poems. Why stay here in your little dungeon? If you really want to be free, make every thought 
a thought of freedom. Break your chains, tear down the walls, then walk the world a free woman. It's from probably 2,000 plus years ago. And then from the poet Yeats, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. Let's just sit for a moment and let me invite your intention. How many of you would like to look into some of this in the next week? Okay, great. And if you didn't raise your hand, you can do it later. Okay. And, and set your intention for how you'll do this. What's going to help you remember? Again, you can look at reactivity. You can look at self-image. Maybe you can look at areas that you named when you identified shadow territory. Thank you. We can have some time now for any questions, discussions, anything that you'd like to ask about. We have one right up front initially. Can wait, can wait for the mic, yeah. Okay. Good morning, thank you so much. You're speaking right to where I'm living these days. Uh, I'm a trained uh, in psychology and a meditator of about four decades. Yeah. And I see myself kind of moving back and forth between the psychological and the spiritual. There was a moment where I got a message from Eckhart Tolle and Angela Sarian of stop listening to the voices of insufficiency. And I think I could have listened to those childhood abused voices forever. When I asked them to stop... There was another Susan there beyond all of that. Yeah. Identifying with her freed me dramatically. Yeah. I so appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. My question is, well, it seems to me that we need to do both of those. Yeah. And you talk about enlightenment. Yeah getting there. What is that like? What do you experience? <laughs> Tell me all about it. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, first of all, for uh, sharing your, some of your own experience. And I think what you said is very important. I'm sure many can relate. Uh, and again, I, I see this a lot in working with the you know, retreats and groups and so forth on transforming the judgmental mind that those that those voices are almost in all of us in some way. And again, some of it's cultural. Uh, and it really takes sustained work to, uh, to see those voices and to um, find a way that they get less powerful and other understandings develop, right? Um, and so, yeah, the... the uh, Awakening is uh, understood as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, traditionally. So it's usually talked about more more negatively 
as to what's not there. And I think it can be helpful to see that we actually have moments of small awakening in which we uh, experience a sense of freedom in a moment. We can, we can, again, we looked at that in exploring being in the present moment. Being in the present moment really can be said to be a state of freedom. I'm, I'm in the present moment. I'm not wanting this. I'm not wanting that. I'm not trying to push away anything. That is, in a way, uh, an awakened moment. And one way to look at it is that simply when the awakened moments uh, accumulate so there are enough in a row, certain experiences occur. I think it's, it could be almost uh, understood mathematically. You know, that's my, my sense. And, and, that, and, and so we can train, the more we have those small moments of awakening, they're almost like certain things start emerging. And there also can, you know, so there can be a lot of different uh, states that are more or less awake. We can be mindful in the moment. That's an awake state. We can have our hearts open. That can be a kind of an awake state. Um, There can be uh, clear seeing into impermanence or reactivity or suffering or the nature of the self. Those can be awake moments. And then there, also, there is also a kind of awareness which can emerge and also can be, can be uh, learned where we open to uh, what some call awakened awareness, which is some others call it non-dual awareness. And one can access that and uh, initially just for a few moments, but then it gets, can get more and more stable. You know, and first you stabilize it in meditation, then you try to learn to stabilize it in the flow of daily life, right? And and it keeps on going. <laughs> and so I would say that there all that there's a whole sequence of ways that we are awake. You know, and it it goes it can go into more uh, mysterious territory. I mean, all of this is mysterious in a certain way, but that's that's an initial map. Yeah, thank you. Hi. Um, one thing I just want to say is I, I was able to go to Heidi Bourne's specific mindfulness uh, sangha in Arcata, California yeah. uh, a few weeks ago, and it was really wonderful uh, trip. The um, To me, just talking about trauma and physical pain and emotional suffering it's a, it's it's quite a, a a big bite but the the way to go into there is ways to work with trauma yeah and one thing on May 24th here the I believe his name is Peter Levine will be here yeah. for, and he's the, the one of the world renowned guys in trauma yeah. and will be doing a two day. And then of course, Shakti Rose does a lot on trauma, but it's, I don't know what, you know, personally, like with physical pain, there are, there are techniques you can use to um, be present while doing the pain. What are there techniques to use while being traumatized while being, because the trauma will knock you right out of the, yeah, of the present yeah, yeah. box. 
Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of practices uh, developed by some of the people you mentioned. Peter Levine was the guiding force behind the three-year training I mentioned. You know, and I, I've studied with him a few times. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of tools for all sorts of situations, including when there's a, a temporary traumatic activation. A lot of what we do there is we learn, you know, if it occurs in meditation, you would just, you would open your eyes and especially look to something that's really pleasant. Have your, not to keep the eyes closed. This is sometimes called orienting and it activates a different part of the brain from the traumatically activated part. And so there are all sorts of other tools for the long-term transformation of trauma. It's a very good book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness by David Trelevin, which goes into a lot of detail, probably will parallel some of the stories I, I told because David had some of those experiences as well. He's in the Bay Area. David had experiences of having a traumatic history and having teachers who uh, didn't recognize trauma right, in retreats and so forth. So there, there are a lot of different tools. So it's actually really, really workable now. And there are some very, very good people uh, Another wonderful book is by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score, which is a very wonderful overview of the science as well and a, a number of different uh, techniques. And there, there are quite a few techniques that, that can be used. Uh, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it, it's really workable. That's the good news is that all of what we've talked about is workable and sometimes can be uh, worked with uh, remarkably quickly. You know, I, I have a friend who pretty much works, he's a former student who's a psychiatrist who works almost exclusively with people with trauma. And he works using a method called EMDR, which is what eye movement desensitization, I forget what the, what's the R stand for. Yeah, response. Reprocessing. And so he tells me that he sometimes has met people who have been in therapy or doing work for 10 or 20 years, and he can resolve a lot of their issues in five or 10 sessions. You know, so some of this, it, you know, it's uh, like that title of the book by Van der Kolk, a lot of trauma stored in the body, and so it's not actually usually so skillful to have a you know, a talk therapy type approach for it. So it's, it, you can actually go to the body to work it out. And the, because you, you know, and, and that can sometimes happen remarkably quickly. So I think that's really the, the pointer for all of this is that we actually have amazing methods so that we can have, in a way, a, um, a map of how to develop both using psychological tools, using tools of trauma work, and using uh, the tools of spiritual traditions. And we're really looking for an integrated way of bringing these together. And you know, it'd be nice if we had them a little more integrated at Spirit Rock. We're, I think we're maybe, maybe in the future sometime. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the expert on that. I mean, like I said, I'm just participating in the conversation. But yeah, we can. We will explore that more. Yeah. So maybe last last one. Okay. I just wanted to ask who the reference was. Someone. 
that someone uh, works on this in 10 sessions. I didn't hear the name of the Oh, person. I didn't give his name. Oh. Uh, his name is uh, Chris Christopher Schrote. His office is in Louisville, Kentucky. But there are people here who do that work. The person I know the best is Laurel Parnell, who has written several books on EMDR and is in Marin County. Uh, and you could find her website. She, she does workshops as well. Any questions about EMDR? We have, we have someone who can respond. Yeah, so it, it's some... Yeah, from Chris, he, he described it as more or less miraculous. Empirically, scientifically, they don't know how it works. But they know that it works. <laughs> it's interesting, right? They don't know the mechanisms that make it work, but it, they, there's empirical verification that the methods of EMDR do work well. They've been around for 25 years, not very long. What? 1988, I think. Yeah, 1988, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so... Let's uh, again uh, remember our intention for the next week to explore this territory in ourselves. And then we invite the morning to be of benefit to us and those in our lives. And then beyond our hall here to be a benefit ultimately for all beings. Wanting to benefit all beings we remember that we are part of all beings. So thank you very kindly. And if you have any further ideas on this, uh, you could send me an email, Care of Spirit Rock, and I'd love to get your input on how to continue to explore the territory. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.